Hello, I'm Andrew Finley, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. Dr. Brenneman has over 20 years of professional museum experience and previously served as the director of collections and exhibitions at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia. Relatively new to the Bloomington community, Dr. Brenneman took over direction of the Indiana University Art Museum in July of 2015. Since his arrival, the museum has begun the process of major updates, including even the renaming of the institution to the Eskenazi Museum of Art. He's here today to tell us a bit about himself and the current and future happenings at the museum. Dr. Brenneman, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Well, first, let's just start with a bit of an introduction on you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a long history in academia as well as in museums. What brought you to this point in your career? Sure. First of all, let me say I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be in Bloomington and uh, just having a blast uh, in terms of the, the museum, the university, uh, the town, and and so it's just a, it's just great to be here. I, I was originally from Pennsylvania. People ask me where I'm from. I, I say Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State as an undergraduate, then went off to New England for graduate school, uh, Brown University. Uh, had my first taste of museum experience uh, as a graduate student, um, first with a a fellowship at the Rhode Island School of Design Museum, then at at Harvard University at, w- at what was then known as the Fog Art Museum. It's now the the Harvard Art Museums, uh, but I worked in the print room there for a year, and really it was that year in the print room at the Fog that 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 really made my decision for me that museums were were where I wanted to be and where I wanted to work. And what, what I really loved about that year was that, that I worked in the print room at the Fog and worked directly with original works of art. And I worked for a really brilliant print curator named Marjorie Cohn, uh, Jerry, otherwise known as Jerry Cohn, Jerry. And Jerry had an incredible knowledge of objects and incredible knowledge of the objects in her care. And uh, it was knowledge that, that, that I wanted to have too. I wanted to know about things in the deep way that she knew about them. And so so that really made my decision to pursue a career in museums. And the the path to a directorship uh, is usually one that that starts at the bottom, which is as a as an intern, then a, an assistant curator, then curator then chief curator, and then finally director. And that's basically the path that, that I took. Um, after my time in New England, I, I also worked for a couple of years at the British Arts Center at Yale University, which was essentially Paul Mellon's uh, collection of British art, which he gifted to Yale. Um, I'd written my doctoral dissertation on uh, Thomas Gainsborough, the 18th century British artist Thomas Gainsborough. So that job seemed like a great fit for me. But it was the, the Yale Center for British Art is a really great research institution. Um, and I did I was able to do some great research there, but I really wanted to be part of a museum that was essential to a community. And as much and as wonderful as, as the British Art Center was, you know, I didn't really feel that that was the experience that I was going to get there. So I applied for a, a curatorship in Atlanta, um, which, which I got, moved down there just before the Olympics, um, experienced the Olympics and the exhibition that the museum did uh, during that time, 
and uh, really felt and saw firsthand the power of art to to inspire people, to to delight people, and and also saw the importance of the the museum in Atlanta, the High Museum of Art to that community. So I spent 20 years building that museum, both programmatically, but also working on the renovation of the Richard Meyer Design Museum building, and then also the expansion of that by designed by an Italian architect, Renzo Piano, which also um, really exposed me to, uh, in a very deep way, to museum architecture. And um, so at the end of 20 years, <laughs> Uh, I really felt that that I wanted to do something uh, different, that I also wanted to be a director, that I wanted to to lead an institution. I did miss the 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 academic environment of of Harvard and Yale and RISD. And so I thought I thought that a a university museum director position would be something that I could really sink my teeth into. And so that that's the long story about how how I arrived here. So this museum is incredible. The collection is amazing, uh, and even and 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 on top of that, it's housed in a in an architecturally significant building designed by one of the uh, the greatest museum architects of the of the later twentieth century, I M Pei. Uh, so really, I've I, I feel like I've I've uh, I'm a kid in a candy shop here. <laughs> That's excellent. Now, now I will call you on one thing. You yep. said after 20 years, you thought yeah. you might be interested in being a museum director. Yeah. Surely that bug <laughs> bit earlier than that. Well, it, it did. It did. It and, did. Yeah. And I, such a long career, yeah. you must have had other opportunities. Yeah. What I, made you choose yeah. IU? Or yeah. what made you choose the Eskenazi Museum? Well, I think it's step? it's true. Well, you did catch me on that. I, I did have a couple <laughs> I did have a couple of, 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 of offers to direct other museums during my time in Atlanta. And, and one of those offers was was to, to lead an academic art museum, I mean, a, a university art museum. And I actually uh, have a, had a little bit of mild regret not doing it. But the reason I stayed in Atlanta was that there there were projects that, that were just, I found, really compelling. Um, one of them was to be the, the leader of a multi-year collaboration with the Musée du Louvre in Paris. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that when these opportunities came along to, to leave the high, there was always something kind of, kind of holding me back. And I think uh, in the, you know, after my 20 years, there were some, some, you know, I would say kind of changes in my life in terms of my family. The second of our two children graduated from high school, gradu- going to graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that, that that was really, so my wife Ruth and I are now empty nesters, which we're really enjoying. <laughs> and I really felt that, that, and one of the other opportunities that I'd had uh, to become a director elsewhere really uh, came at a time which was not really great for our kids in terms of their schooling. And so, you know, you make these decisions, everyone makes these decisions, mm-hmm. um, and and it just turned out that, in a way, the, the third time was the charm, that, that, that I knew about the museum here. I had never actually visited the museum, which is which is a larger issue that, that the university and the museum face, which is that, that we need more people to actually come and see what's here. But I'd never been here. I'd borrowed some works of art from the, from the museum. No kidding. And I knew that it had great things. Um, I also knew the museum a little bit by reputation. 
I had heard of, of Heidi Geld, my predecessor. Kathy Foster, who was a longtime curator of European and American art, moved on to become curator of American art at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, so that I knew that it was a, a, a museum and an art history program that was producing uh, excellent scholars, excellent art historians, excellent curators. I'd also heard of Roy Sieber, uh, who was one of the great professors and teachers of African art. Uh, I knew the collection of African and Oceanic art here by reputation, um, not in any any depth or detail, but I knew it was it was reported to be one of the greatest collections of African and Oceanic art in, in an American art museum. And now that you have a first-hand and view, is, is it is yeah, it confirmed? is. It's absolutely it is. It's it it is a stunning, stunningly beautiful and important collection. And I think that that it's it's incredible that it's here. I mean, each every museum has these great stories about. Um, they usually revolve around people. Uh, revolve around people, and you know the the Eskenazi Museum of Art is 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 no different. I mean, the the fact that Roy Sieber had uh, befriended this uh, couple, the Wilguses in Chicago, had had advised them that the director at the time, uh, Tom Solly, then engaged them and ultimately stewarded their collection, shepherded their collection into our museum is just uh, is is really incredible but it was but it, in the end everything that we do is about people so whether it's the very our very basic job of connecting people with art mm-hmm. uh, or or in this case um, uh, getting these great collectors to to see us as the repository of their uh, of their collection of their kind of life's work there are there are hundreds of these stories um, and 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 those are really what make would have helped make this this museum such a great museum. You've mentioned uh, the collection a few times, or alluded yeah. to the collection. Yeah. And certainly your opinion or your view of it has changed um, mm-hmm. from afar mm-hmm. compared to where you are now. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw as some of the maybe museum or collection highlights sure. uh, before you arrived here? And now, what are some of the highlights? Yeah. That, well, what are some of the objects that you think should be highlights of yeah. the museum? Well, I think one of my challenges before coming here was that it was very difficult to find information about the collection. And so so I wasn't able to find much information on the website about the collection. Uh, I wasn't able to find, um, for example, a a collections guide or a collections handbook um, that that provided a kind of overview of the collection. So that that was um, that's I think that's been sort of a, a challenge for the institution. That's something that we're working on. Uh, so I just knew some things about the museum that were kind of hearsay, things that I'd heard, things that like mm-hmm. disparate things that I'd seen or that I was trying. I was trying to put together a kind of a collage, collaged picture of the institution. But it was really only on my when I when I was invited for an interview when I did my my walkthrough with with the chief curator Diane Pellrein, and that I I saw the collections firsthand um, that I was just shocked. I was shocked that 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 first of all that it was a truly encyclopedic collection that there are there are objects from all over the world that there are objects from uh, the beginning of when humans started to make works of art to the present. And more than that, I was shocked that there were certain collections that were incredibly strong and deep. 
So, so for example, I figured the the Af- African and Oceanic collections would be terrific, and and I I was not disappointed in any way, but I was surprised at how extensive the ancient art collection is. So that is uh, Greek and Roman, and uh, and arts art of the the Mediterranean world. And I was really I was really surprised by that. And I was I was even more surprised, and I didn't even learn this till I arrived on the job last July, that we have five thousand pieces of ancient jewelry, and it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I and mean, rare these, and rare. And these are these are uh, in some cases these are sculptural masterpieces in miniature. They are just extraordinary things, and uh, it's a collection that that like like many of, of of our collections. It's a collection that I think is known to to scholars, to specialists. Uh, for example, uh, one of my friends uh, from graduate school uh, who is now the curator of glass at the Toledo Museum of Art, her name is Yuta Yuta Page, Yuta Brun Page. Yuta, um, although she's now a specialist in glass, she uh, was herself a, a jewelry maker, a metalsmith, and had studied ancient jewelry. And when she wrote me to con- congratulate me on the position, she said, oh, and you have this amazing collection of ancient jewelry. <laughs> and so, so there are people who know. But I think more broadly, when I mention that we have this collection, or when I do mention that we have this collection, I get a surprise reaction. Like, really? Like, we, like where? And then, the, and then the question is, well, where is it? And unfortunately, uh, only a very small portion uh, of our jewelry collection is actually ever on view at any given time. I can't give you uh, uh, an exact uh, number, but it's it's probably uh, I'm going to say it probably less than one percent of the collection mm-hmm. is uh, maybe two percent. I have no idea is is on view at any given time. So one of the 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 things that I immediately began to think about was well how do we get how we how do we make this collection more accessible how do we get more of this collection uh, on view and get it so that people can interact with it they can they can learn from it but I think back to your question about what what have I learned about the collection I've learned that that we're sitting on a gold mine uh, that that our collections are they are broad they are encyclopedic they are in certain cases very deep. Uh, and 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 in certain cases they are uh, absolutely exceptional. The other collection that surprised me was our prints, drawings, and photographs collection. We have over twenty-two thousand prints, drawings, and photographs. Uh, the museum in Atlanta, which was the the High Museum, which is the General City Art Museum, and serves six and a half million people, has uh, when I left the High had approximately eight thousand uh, prints, drawings, and photographs. Um, so the collection here is substantially bigger <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, than that collection, and and in some respects, particularly, I would say, actually in all three areas, prints, drawings, and photographs is much better, and it's just true. I mean, I love the High Museum of Art, but but the collections here are are amazing, and um, so I've enjoyed. Um, we just recently kind of got our collections database going. It's not available to the public yet. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it will be in the, in, the, in the foreseeable future. But I've just been able to, to get in and to, to look around, and I've just been really amazed at, at what I've been able to find uh, in our database. I mean, it really, it's a really great collection of, of prints, drawings, and photographs. It's fascinating that yeah. you mentioned that, too, yeah. especially after yeah. uh, earlier you said that, that really a print room at a museum 
influenced your entire career track and your interest in the field of of museum studies and art history. Most of our listeners, uh, even those who frequent museums, might not be familiar with print collections simply because those tend to be Mm -hmm. cloistered parts of a museum. Oftentimes you need permission to visit the print room because of the fragility of the objects. Is the print collection at the Eskenazi Museum available to the public? Yeah, it is. It's not perfect, but I think we have a system that that more or less works. Um, We have a full-time curator of print drawings and photographs, Nan Brewer. There is a a sign-up sheet uh, in the the Fine Arts Library, Um, and I think through that system that's been set up, you can sign up uh, and then schedule an appointment with with Nan to to see the works. Basically, our our print room, as other print rooms, uh, work like uh, rare book libraries. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is restricted access, and simply because the materials are so precious and valuable and fragile. Um, but the collections are accessible, uh, and and really a question for for us uh, moving forward is how do we make them even more accessible? How do we make them more accessible in terms of people coming in and actually looking at them, uh, looking at the works in the original? How do we make them more accessible through through publications, and how do we make them more accessible through through our website, um, through through getting our our database out into the world? And those are all all things that that we're currently working on. Now you're not afraid that this will produce a, an overabundance of future museum directors, are you? <laughs> you know, look, I I love what I do. There there are days when when I go home and I just have to pinch myself that that I get paid to do this job. Uh, it's 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 an amazing job. In other ways, uh, running an art museum is is like any managerial job, and and there are other days where where maybe I'm not as buoyant uh, <laughs> when I get when I get home from work. But overall. I love what I do. Uh, I definitely do it because I love it. Um, I do it because I'm passionate about it. And I would I would say if there are any listeners who who, who want to be a museum director, I, I highly encourage you. It is a marathon race. You don't get into it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, you have to you have to kind of keep your eye on the prize. So uh, there there you have to pay a lot of dues. To get to to the point where you're where where you're the director of an art museum, so and I I gladly did all of the th- all of those things um, to get to this point, and I had and I had a blast along the way. I mean I met I've met incredible people, I've I've seen incredible things, I've been incredible places, and definitely it's a job that that has its perks. It's true. I mean you know what what we have care of are these just extraordinarily rich things and they're things that are uh they're the the highest you know form of what they are and they are meant to give pleasure you know they some of them you know are also meant to be thought provoking and and or may provoke ideas or thoughts that that aren't entirely pleasant uh but they are things that are about the art is 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 about pleasure you know, it's about visual pleasure. It's about tactile pleasure. And unfortunately, people think that they have to know more. It's like wine or anything, you know, that people think they have to know more than they really do in order to to get it, to, to get something out of it, you know. The human experience itself yeah, is, exactly. is completely relatable to all. And I think that's, if we can overcome that, 
that threshold, you know, of of fear, anxiety, whatever it is, to say, you know, just come enjoy it, you know, and and you may enjoy it so much that you want to come back or that you want to learn more. And if you do, we're ready for you. We're here. You know, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art. We'll be right back. You're listening to Profiles in WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. Well, you may not make any money in the museum industry, but certainly museums uh, attract sums of money. And recently, yes. the Indiana University yes. Art Museum was changed to the Eskenazi Museum of Art, Correct. I believe, as a result of a major gift Correct. that the institution received. Can Correct. you tell us more about that, the name change of the museum sure. and the gift itself? Yeah, sure. The gift comes from uh, a couple, an Indianapolis couple, uh, Sydney and Lois Eskenazi. They're both uh, alums of, of Indiana University. And they are, uh, they've been very successful in their lives. And I think they both are philanthropists in the truest sense in that, that they believe that one of the things that they need to do in their life is to help other human beings. And so, uh, so they have uh, varied interests. One of their interests is in helping people through medicine and so their name is on the one of the major hospitals in in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also love art, and the way that that I gather, they both they both came at art in, in slightly different ways, as I understand it. One is um, Sidney actually came to art and collecting uh, through his early legal practice, where he was paid in art uh, <laughs> by clients who couldn't who couldn't pay cash. And I think the fact that he could own these things, uh, he, he, he is a passionate collector of the prints of the Spanish modernist Juan Miro. The fact that he could have these things, that he could live with these things, I think was very compelling for him. And I think uh, something that we have a disease uh, in, the, in the art world, which is called collecting. And, and it's, I think it's a beautiful disease because ultimately museums uh, are some of the beneficiaries of, of, of this collecting that happens out there. But it becomes an obsession, and I think that's sort of what happened with Sydney. Lois, on the other hand, um, actually came at, at art through making it and at a certain point was hospitalized. And, and I think the, 
art making was was a was a form of therapy, and so that, I think they also believe that that art, which I believe too, that art does in fact have healing properties. That 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 making art, thinking about art, can can help us focus, uh, and and can help us um, relax, and can help us heal. And so I think that that they both um, had these 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 strong interests in art. And so when when the university approached them about the idea of funding a major renovation of the art museum, I think they, they thought that that would be a, a terrific idea, particularly since one of the things that we do extremely well, and, and, and I think we're just going to continue to do, do better and better, is to, is to engage students and to also serve the K through 12 students of, of, of Southern Indiana. So I think they both, um, you know, believed in that and, and ultimately put their money where their, where their beliefs are and where their philanthropic spirit is. And so I'm just, I'm delighted knowing them and knowing that about them. I'm delighted that, that their names are on the museum because I, I know who they are and I know what they believe in. And it's exactly they share the spirit, they carry the spirit of, of what, what we're about. You mentioned renovations to the museum. What yes. can you tell us about some of the future plans of the museum uh, and changes sure. that may, permanent changes that sure. may happen to the structure itself? Well, I can, I can talk kind of in generalities about it. I think the building opened in, in 1982. And as I said, it was designed by, by IMPay. You know, IMPay was... Uh, at an interesting moment in his career at that time. Uh, he had just finished the East Wing of the National Gallery, which opened in 1978. And after our building opened in 1982, he immediately launched into the Louvre and the the great work uh, of the Louvre and uh, create the creation of the pyramid and the public entrance and the kind of the unification of this rather uh, complex uh, palace. So, uh, so it was at a time... I think a sort of a, a a golden moment in Pei's career, and um, it's a building that I uh, I admire a great deal. I admire it from the perspective of both a uh, a building that does its job, which is that it you know we have an encyclopedic collection, so which is you know a collection of of, of art that spans hi- human history, spans the continents. And I think that one can get through the collection in in a reasonably you know short amount of time, and uh, and sort of capture everything. And I think that that in terms of you know that effect, I guess, or that that intention, I think that the building really worked. In other respects, I would say that the building maybe didn't kind of fulfill its mission. And originally, the building was designed as a kind of art museum slash teaching laboratory. And so behind the scenes of the museum, which visitors don't never see, there were intended to be uh, classroom spaces. There, were t- there, were, there was intention for there to be open storage. There were a suite of conservation labs, which ultimately uh, the storage units, the storage areas became overcrowded. So teaching could no longer take place there. Works of art are now not in ideal storage conditions. The, the conservation labs, you know, simply weren't, I don't know what to say, they, they, uh, some of them have been, been remained idled. 
so the museum really, uh, in a way, in my view, never really achieved what what I think IMPE and what Tom Solly, who was a director at the time, who worked closely with IMPE, what it was kind of intended to do. And so at one level, what the the renovation will do is to try to revive that initial desire for the museum to be more of a, a, a laboratory, more of a space where where teaching takes place and and where where hands-on examination of original works of art takes place. There is one currently one room, one conference room in the museum that is an all-purpose room. We use it for staff meetings, we use it to eat lunch, we use it for classes. It is the only purpose-designed meeting room in the entire museum building. And it is simply it is simply inadequate. Uh, and so so moving forward, uh, we're we're thinking about expanded spaces, expanded uh, sort of seminar spaces, hands-on spaces, places where we can provide our students, our faculty, our visitors with a deeper engagement with the works of art that that are in our care. So I would say that's one one thing that we're really thinking about. I would say that anyone who's been into the galleries, which haven't been touched really since 1982 you kind of feel that, that the displays are outmoded and that it really distracts from feeling how important the collection is. As, a, as an expert, as a connoisseur, uh, when I walk in and I, and I saw those works of art, uh, regardless of, of, of their setting, you know, I, I immediately grasp what they were. But I think that that, that kind of outdated setting for our collections is, is off-putting. And I think is is I think it misleads visitors into thinking that what they're looking at is is not as good as it really is. And uh, you know, Monet had this great um, saying that 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 has always stuck with me, which is which is he said, a picture gains a hundred percent with a good frame, <laughs> and it's absolutely true. And and I think that that could be applied to to our collections. That I think that our collections deserve to be uh, showcased. So that will also be another priority for us as we move forward. In terms of the the building itself, it is a building that uh, is a work of art. And so our intention uh, in renovating it is to respect that, um, to respect the architecture, um, respect what both IMPE and Tom Solly uh, conceived of together. There may be some things that we will do that that will hopefully allow the building to function better as a museum, but but our intention is for the renovation process to be and project to be very sensitive to the architecture. So those are just a few. Uh, I mean, if please feel free to ask uh, ask ask more questions. But those are just a few things that are at the top of my mind in terms of the the renovation project. Well, it sounds like you want the museum to be a better showcase, not only for the the objects of the collection, but yeah. also for the field of art history itself. Yeah, and the general population's appreciation of art. And beyond that. Uh, it sounds like there are expansions coming up or at least some remodeling of yeah. the structure itself that's going to be sensitive to the original design. Yeah. Several museums have gone through that in the last decade or two, top of mind, the, universe, or the 
Art Institute of Chicago, sure. as well as the Cleveland yeah. Museum of Art, underwent major renovations uh, to historic buildings. Yeah. Any that you see as models? Yeah. For- well, I think, and let me be clear, the we're not expanding. Um, we're simply going to be working within the existing okay. footprint of, of IMPA's building. I think that, that there are certainly museums that we're we're studying uh, in order to, you know, not to replicate those those buildings or what happens in those buildings, but to to gather ideas to figure out what is it that we would we would like to do and how can we how can we accomplish those ideas in in, in our building. One of the the great uh, university renovations has been the one at Harvard Art Museum, of course. and uh, which was undertaken by Renzo Piano, who is an architect that, that I worked with when, when I worked in Atlanta. That project is, it's the gold standard. It is just, it's incredible. The scope of it was far beyond what, what, what we're going to be doing uh, here at IU. But I would say that they have been dealing with ideas that, that we've been tossing around, which is for example, creating spaces in our museum where if a professor is teaching a class about a certain aspect of art history and we have collections that support that, that instead of going through the the long process of trying to create a special exhibition, that we have a, a gallery where we can more easily uh, install the works of art on a temporary basis. Um, so, so it may not be the most elegant exhibition, but for the purposes of the class, we can move very quickly. So a teaching gallery. Yeah, exactly. So those are things that we're, we're definitely looking at other museums and seeing how they're, how they're handling that. Um, and in some cases, uh, we, we may be able to, um, to improve uh, and, and in other cases, it's simply understanding the concepts that, that led to however it is other university art museums have, have rethought their museums. Do you think that this offers uh, added opportunity for collaboration with other parts of the university? Oh, absolutely. Um, are there other campuses, the Department yeah. of Art History yeah, or the um, Arts Management Program at yes. the School of Public and Environmental Affairs? Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Museums, whether they're in big cities or whether they're in universities, which are essentially academic cities, they're, mm-hmm. they're cities of students and teachers, museums have to figure out ways to, to make themselves relevant and compelling. And it's simply, a, it's simply what we have to do. And um, and so I think that that I am definitely interested in those types of partnerships and collaborations, and I'm interested in the museum being uh, as relevant as it possibly can be, and as accessible as it possibly can be to to as much of the university as possible. One of the things that that I think we've been extremely successful in is that we have a position, senior staff position which was created thanks in part to the Mellon Foundation and in part to a very generous donor named Tony Moravec, uh, we created a senior academic officer. And that officer's job is to interface with faculty throughout the university to create sort of customized experiences for their students. And so, for example, if you're from the business school, um, we can create a program using our collections that can can address some of the issues that you might want to deal with in, in the business school, but do it through art and do it through our collections. 
or uh, language, you know, language departments, um, or you name it. I think she told me that that she works and interfaces with over seventy different departments on the campus. So I think that's something that that to me indicates our relevance. And now I think what we really want to do is create ways, enable um, our faculty, our students to be able to to use our collections so that that it's not just, you know, someone on our staff, you know, creating a, a special program, but in fact by making the collection more accessible, by making the the database accessible that really others on campus and different parts of campus can use can use our collections in the way that the that they need to and using art as a physical object yeah exactly from. exactly i mean these objects are in my experience that great works of art of which we have many have many layers of meaning <laughs> mm-hmm. and that that great works of art are never going to be fully explained <laughs> because they are so complex and so, so yes, I think that, that if there are colleagues across the university who see things in our collections that we don't necessarily see, that's awesome. You know, we, we in fact, can learn from that. <laughs> and so, so I'm just being as, as encouraging uh, of that as I can possibly be. You're listening to Profiles in WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art. Well, it sounds like you are shifting part of the traditional model of a museum or intending to innovate a little bit on the use of museums as well as their accessibility to the public. I myself have noticed over the past few months, just following the the museum's Twitter account, for example, Whoever you have running it is terrific, by the way. And sending out images of Pokemon from the popular Pokemon (laughs) Go game right now uh, in the galleries. Or even the monthly public yoga course that takes place, I think, on the – is it the second Saturday of every month? Yeah. Do you have any more programs like this? How effective do you think these are in increasing the popularity or visitors to the museum first? And second, do you have any other – yeah. Exciting new ideas along the same <laughs> well, broad model of yeah. accessibility. Well, we're trying we're trying a few few experiments. Um, one thing that any arts organization in in the world is thinking about right now is the future and future generations of of attendees of visitors. And because if 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 we're not thinking about that, then we're going to die. And so. You know, one of the 
things that museums are particularly thinking about are the the millennials. And the millennials are, everyone's trying to figure out the millennials. Like, what, how do they work and how do they speak to each other and how do we speak to them? And how can, can we, art museums, uh, be, be relevant uh, to them? And so, so we're undertaking some experiments. One of the things that we think is appealing to uh, our potential younger visitors is the idea of not just appreciating works of art, but somehow being involved in the art-making process hmm. or in events that are perhaps unusual, perhaps, I don't know, uh, artistic in nature. And so, um, so what you're finding, and this is not only true at our museum, but at other museums, that we're investing a lot more time and energy in, in events and programs. And so one of, the th- one of the experiments we're trying next fall is um, I actually visited with a wonderful um, housing complex on ca- campus called Collins Living Learning Center. And I met with the students there shortly after I got to Bloomington. And one of the things that they said to me, which I, I kind of already knew, but it was great to hear, them, hear it from them, is that um, students, like adults, see their daylight hours, you know, whatever it is, eight, nine, to the end of the day as work, work time. And they see the museum as a leisure time activity, mm. not as a work-related activity. And so uh, like, uh, like museums in big cities, like uh, working adults, um, museums need to adjust to that and, and, and need to provide uh, times for, for people to come into the, to the museums that are um, after our working at the, you know, the professional staff of the museum, after our working hours. So next, uh, beginning in, in, at the very beginning of September, the first Thursday in September, we're going to have uh, late hours at the, at the museum. And we're going to have uh, not only the museum won't just be open, but we'll actually have uh, activities that will be available in in the museum. Can you give I, us some examples no, of activities? No, I can't. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think that there will be music, there will be food, um, there will be social activities that that will allow for 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 sociability in the in the in the museum. And and what's really great is that that in addition to to us doing that. The, the university, through the Arts and Humanities Council, will also have activities outside of the museum, so in the plaza around the Showalter Fountain. So there will also be music and other, other uh, things out there. And, and the idea is that, that we're, as a, as, a, as a museum, as a, as a place of, of social interaction, that, that we're a place where, um, where you can be, where uh, it's not just about being in a class and either having a conversation or, or learning about something specific, that we're a place where, where art lives, where the, the muses live, and that whether or not you're looking at a painting hanging on a wall, that there are things that you can do in art museums that, that are about enriching life, having a richer life. One of the things we had, we, we, one of our first experiments in this regard was we had a, a big party in April called the Big Birthday Bash. And uh, so we had all kinds of activities. My, my favorite activity was that we had uh, one of the, I guess it was a poetry guild in, in Bloomington come, and several of the poets sh- set up shop in, in, in our galleries, and they did poetry on demand. Hmm. And again, it's, it's not a big deal, 
But it's you know it, the poems then were gifts um, to you know to our to our visitors. I actually I actually commissioned a poem, and it's just that that art is again it's 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 not just something that you turn on and off. That it's part of your life. It's part of the way that you you think about life, the way you experience life. It's everywhere, and I think that's something that that all museums are are interested in in heightening that that sense. Um, that idea. And and so we're really looking forward to these first Thursday uh, evenings. Again, based on the the big birthday bash that we had in April, um, we think that, that it could be pretty terrific. And now that the Arts and Humanities Council is going to extend it beyond our walls, I think that, that uh, we're, we're all really, really excited about it. Um, so that's one thing that, that we're doing. We're also bringing a major exhibition of a, a living artist to uh, an internationally recognized living artist to our museum named Vic Muniz. Vic's an artist that I love and I, and I love in relation to our museum because his work is about the history of art. And he, he is an avid aficionado of, of the history of art. And uh, and his imagery shows that because he he takes these images from our kind of visual memory of of great works of art, um, and he produces works of art that play on that that visual memory. Um, That's really exciting. Will the yeah. artist himself be on campus? Yeah, he's for... coming. He's going to be here on. He's going to be lecturing on September thirtieth, and I really encourage anyone out there who wants to hear a great artist who is also someone who I think is very articulate. Yeah, that would really encourage them to come. You can check him out. You can Google him. It's, it's Vic, V-I-K, and last name is M-U-N-I-Z. Uh, and you can see, you know, other things that he's done. There's a wonderful interview. It's, it's a little bit dated now, but it's an interview, um, David Byrne of Talking Heads, who goes to Vic's studio and talks with his work. And David Burns is a big fan of his. Yeah, he's a really, really interesting guy, a really interesting thinker. And I'm as delighted that he's going to be coming uh, uh, as his his art um, being here. Of course, he can only come for a short period of time. The art can stay for a few months. How long will the exhibition last? So it opens to the public. So the, the public lecture is September 30th. The first opening day is uh, October 1st. And then it closes the first uh, Sunday in February, which I think is something like February 5th or 6th. So most of the sem- beyond the semester. Yeah, it'll it'll actually it'll actually uh, go into the the second uh, semester, the, the spring semester. So that's just again, those are just a couple of things that, that that we're doing that that are really, you know, again experiments, and we're really hoping that that these experiments resonate and that they take off. And if they don't, it's okay. We'll try other experiments. But I think. We have to continue to to be experimental. We have to, you know, in the in the spirit of the art museum as laboratory, it's not just the museum as laboratory with regard to art. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really museum as laboratory, uh, how we can get people to engage with the art. Because in the end, it's a very simple equation. Uh, I learned this a long time ago, that our job at its very core is to take great art and to connect people with it. It's very simple. <laughs> Not only is that simple to carry it out, uh, but the the concept is very is very simple. But very rare in museums, <laughs> many of which for the last oh century or so, yeah. uh, maybe the last hundred and what twenty five years since the modern 
uh, museum collection yeah. started have been devoted to collecting, collecting, collecting. And although they may have been dedicated to the public and to the public interest, yeah. the focus was so often and is so often on preservation over education. It sounds like uh, what you're advocating for is a fundamental change yeah. in the way museums interact with the public at well, large. I think it's happening everywhere. I don't think that we're unusual in that regard. I think that what what is extraordinary about IU is are the incredible treasures that are not only you know in our care at the art museum, but the the Lily Rare Book Library, uh, the Kinsey Institute, the Wells Library, the Mathers Museum. There are extraordinarily rich cultural resources here, and I just wish with with all my my heart <laughs> and my being and my energy to alert people to the presence of these things and the fact that there is so much to be learned and enjoyed by interacting with these things. But we just simply have to do a better job of, of getting the word out about who we are, you know, what we have and what we believe in. And and I think, again, that's part of the, the, the renovations, part of what's driving the uh, – it's an important part of what's driving us uh, to do what we do. So now I'll ask you to do some poetry on demand. You don't need to do a haiku or anything, although it would be helpful. In just one sense, can you encapsulate what's happening at the museum uh, since your tenure and where you see it leading to in the next oh, 10 years? Oh, gosh. And you can do it in haiku format if you like. I think there's a, there, the Poetry Guild of Bloomington will appreciate it. Well, there's a reason that uh, they do what they do <laughs> and I do what I do. And, wow, I just – no, I, I, I wish – I'm struggling because I wish I could just – and maybe this is a great uh, takeaway for me is to be able to – to have this sentence, but... How about an art historian's <laughs> language, ekphrasis? Ekphrasis. Word painting. Can you paint for us a picture with your words of where you see the museum heading? Yeah, I think that at the... Well, I mean, maybe I can do this, maybe I can't, but I think what I can feel, what I can taste, what I can see at the the end of this process is is a museum that is... It's essential, it's essential to to the university. It's essential to 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 Bloomington, and it's a place where where again the the muses live. It's a place of creativity. It's a place where when you come, you you have ideas. You feel inspired. You feel nourished, and. I just I know it's there. We have all of the raw materials. We don't have to search for collections. We don't have to maybe there are certain places where we could use a few more of these and a few more of those, but we have all of the raw materials. We have the the ingredients to create something really really amazing. But there is um something that a that a previous uh mentor uh said to me which is that you know, when museums create special exhibitions or when they when they finish, you know, renovations and new projects, it's like Babette's feast. Okay? <laughs> it's like Babette's feast. It's a it's a feast of the most rare and most delicious and most on the one hand most sophisticated, on the other hand the sweetest, the most savory things that you could you could imagine. It's a, it's a it's an extraordinary feast. The most expensive uh, items, 
And all you can hope is that people will come and partake in the feast. And and I think at the end of the day, I, I want us to be a feast that people partake in. That's a terrific way to describe yeah. a museum. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question. So much of the discussion we've had so far about engaging uh, the population is focused on, especially the students of Indiana mm-hmm. University. Mm-hmm. Are there any under- initiatives or programs that you're undertaking currently uh, that are going to try to engage the greater Bloomington community as a whole? Yeah, well, we're 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 again we're beginning to to think about that. Uh, in fact, um, I have coming up very soon a tour of the museum with with the mayor uh, and with his newly appointed sort of arts commissioner, not, maybe not commissioner, but arts person. And and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how uh, we can be not only IU's art museum, but how we can be Bloomington's art museum and how we could be Southeast in Indiana's art museum. And frankly, how we can be Indiana's art museum. Because we are, by virtue of being part of IU, we are in effect the state uh, the state art museum. Um, I know there's the state museum in, in, in Indianapolis, but um, they're not exclusively focused on art mm-hmm. and they just don't have the collections that, that we have. So, um, so that's both a, a privilege uh, and a responsibility, but it's also kind of fun. And um, and so one of the another little project that we're doing as an experiment um, is that we we one of my colleagues, Abe Morris, who's our manager of, of uh, marketing public relations, uh, identified this uh, young man in Seattle who he's kind of an inventor, self-taught uh, person. Who who found that if he took this um, liquid, it's a hydrophobic uh, liquid, it's very clear. If he took it and he painted it on a dry sidewalk, that when it rained, that when it rains, that the the rain will soak into the concrete uh, around where this this hydrophobic liquid has been painted. So he can actually create designs that that appear when it rains or when the concrete is wet. And he called this rainworks. So we invited him to come here and to work on on Rainworks with us for for to help us celebrate our 75th uh, anniversary. So uh, one of the Rainworks will will happen in front of the museum. Um, one of, there will be other Rainworks that I think will be in other parts of the campus. Um, but we're also working with I believe the library uh, and also Wonder Lab uh, to create Rainworks there. And I think that that this is just the beginning, and that I'm really, really eager to talk, you know, with with John Hamilton um, about how how we could be a museum without walls. There's uh, the, the 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 famous book by Andre Malraux, the the French culture minister, and I think that that that's what we should be. We should, in fact, be a museum without walls. That we should extend and reach out um, beyond the, the, the physical structure of, of the museum. So how we do that uh, has yet to be determined. How we do that in a way that complements what, what the town wants has yet to be determined, but I'm really excited to try. And, and I'm hopeful that the Rainworks project will be uh, successful. It's, very, it's kind of a very modest kind of experiment, but it's very cool. And, uh, and if it is, then let's try other experiments. 
and go from there. That sounds exciting. I've been speaking today with Dr. David Brenneman, the director of the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University's campus. Dr. Brenneman, thank you for being here with us today to talk about yourself as well as the exciting things in store for the Eskenazi Museum. Thank you, Andy. It was a great pleasure. This is Andrew Finley for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.